And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Luis Perales. I'm a graduate student at St. John's College in Annapolis. And I recently wrote a piece for Persuasion titled, What Mexico Gets Right About Race. So I was born in Mexico. I moved to the U.S. when I was 10 years old, grew up in southeastern Virginia. But even from a very young age, I felt like there was this big disconnect between how race was talked about in Mexico and what I was hearing as a teen in the U.S. So I wanted to explore Mexico's attitude towards race. And I think what comes out of Mexico is a really different but really interesting approach. It's called mestizaje. In Spanish, that translates roughly to mixed race or race mixture. And so whereas many parts of the world, including the U.S., categorize people into a few discrete racial categories, Black, white, Asian, etc., the idea in Mexico is that the country is inherently mixed race, that to be Mexican means being of a mixed race ancestry. It's a view that was really pushed after the Mexican Revolution in the early 20th century, and it still holds sway among many Mexicans today. To be clear, racism exists in Mexico. The idea of mestizaje is an imperfect one. It shouldn't be romanticized. But I also think that Mexico's approach makes the country far less race conscious and that there are real benefits to that. So, for example, mestizaje makes it easier to shift away from a very rigid vocabulary around racial categories. It makes it easier to view race relations outside of a conflict-minded or conflict-oriented framework with whiteness on one side and people of color on the other. And that's how it's often presented in the U.S. The way that I put it in the piece is that, on balance, Mexico's approach offers a constructive view that both complicates and moderates the significance of race. It's a view that's been criticized in Mexico in recent years, but I think it'd be a mistake for it to adopt a more Americanized language. And I think that a lot of people outside of Mexico can learn a lot from how it handles race. Luis Perales's piece called What Mexico Gets Right About Race was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Jamie Kerchik. Jamie is the author of Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. He's also a columnist at Tablet. Jamie and I talked about just the extent of repression of gay people in the United States and particularly in Washington in the 1940s and the 1950s, but also about the remarkable story of how America changed transformed in a radical way on how it views homosexuals and what kind of rights gay people have. I learned a lot about the story of gay people in the United States through this conversation, but we also had a really interesting discussion about what we can learn from that, for how to fight for other political causes in a winning way, and what to expect for the rights of gay people and other minorities in the next decades and even centuries. Jamie Kerchik, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. There's lots of things that I'm excited to talk to you about, but, but let's start with your book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. I think it's a really beautiful testament to how much our social world has changed and in some ways how quickly it has changed. You know, the, the secret city, the hidden Washington, that was a very, very real thing at the beginning of your story. Tell us about what the early history of America's capital and homosexuality was. So I start the book around the New Deal in the years leading up to World War II, because World War II is a tremendously important moment in the history of homosexuality in the United States, but also in the world, because it's then 
when homosexuality is transformed into a national security threat. You know, up to that point, it had been obviously condemned in Judeo-Christian religious tradition and other religious traditions. It was a medical condition. Gay people were often uh, pathologized in sentimental institutions and lobotomized and castrated and subjected to all sorts of torture, really. There's no other word for it. And it was illegal across much of the Western world. Although interestingly, you know, lesbianism was not illegal in some places in Britain, nor actually in Nazi Germany. But male homosexuality was certainly condemned legally. And then what happens with World War II is that this concept of national security really takes shape in the United States. And the fear is that gay people, because they have this deep, dark, terrible secret, will be more liable to blackmail. And they will be more liable to, you know, giving away confidential secret information to a foreign power because they want to protect this deep, dark secret. And the irony, of course, is that under a sufficiently repressive regime, that may be true, right? If you create such strong disincentives for people to be true to who they are, yes. then, of course, it's true that they will become incredibly fearful of that secret being revealed. And that even the more liberal-minded people of the time would have said what you just said as a justification for this policy of excluding gay people from having security clearances or working in the government. I mean, two things. One is that the government could have just as easily said, yes, we know that there is this terrible environment out there, but if you are in a situation, you know, you're a gay State Department official and you are being blackmailed because of your homosexuality, come to us and reveal your homosexuality. We will not fire you. But more importantly is actually there was never in the United States a recorded instance of a gay person being blackmailed into giving away confidential information. In fact, there was a Defense Department study in the early 1990s when the gays in the military debate was gearing up again. And they studied over 100 cases of Americans convicted for espionage. And six of them were gay, but not a single one of them had anything to do with blackmails because of money or ideology. And in fact, the origins of this myth are traced back to pre-World War I Austro-Hungarian Empire, where there was the head of their counterintelligence service was a man named Colonel Alfred Radel, who was selling secrets to the Russians. And he's discovered in 1913, so just before the outbreak of war. And he's later blamed by the Austro-Hungarian regime as basically being the man who led the country into war. It turns out that he was gay, but we wouldn't know this many years later until after the archives were open, the Russian archives were opened. He was not blackmailed into his treason. He was extremely greedy. He had multiple houses and cars and a huge wine cellar. But this story caught on and the story of Alfred Radel became this almost mythological parable in the minds of Western intelligence officials. And decades later, Alan Dulles, the first civilian head of the CIA, he's writing books about the Radel story. And when the, the issue of gays in the federal government in the United States first becomes a kind of hysterical cause around the early years of the McCarthy period, the head of the CIA at the time is testifying. This is in 1950. He's testifying about the presence of homosexuals in the intelligence services. And the only example he can come up with is the story of Colonel Radel. Oh, Wow. So it's not just that the story sort of becomes naturalized and, you know, that sort of where the fear comes from, people forget the story. Is that that story is actually kept alive. Oh, for decades and decades. And if you, I mean, I bet if you would talk to sort of, you know, members of the BND, right, the German post-war intelligence, they would have, you know, maybe in the 60s or 70s, right, when gay people were still pre prevented from 
serving in those institutions, they probably would have mentioned the Radel case. It was that well known within sort of Western intelligence lore. It's not until the early 2000s that it's disproven. And so, as you were saying, obviously, being gay was incredibly hard in Washington or anywhere else before World War II. But these fears about national security ramp up during World War II, I suppose, and then during the Cold War. How does that transform life in Washington, D.C.? Does, does that make things worse, I presume? Yeah, I mean, I say that being a gay person, and particularly a gay man in Washington in this period of the early Cold War, the 50s, It was like being a dissident in an East Bloc country. I mean, when you think about it, you know, your bars are being raided and you're being arrested and maybe your name is put in the newspaper the next day. Your mail is being confiscated, right? They're the, the first real gay rights case of the Supreme Court. It was in 1957. It involved a magazine called One, which was a magazine for homophiles. That was, that was one of the preferred terms for homosexuals. It was not at all pornographic. It was just sort of a literary intellectual magazine. It was, you know, impounded by the postal service and its editors were charged with obscenity. So, you know, your mail was confiscated, your magazines were taken. You know, if you were organizing politically in the early 1960s, the first sort of gay rights organization in the United States is, is founded in the Hay Adams Hotel. That meeting was surveilled by the local police and the FBI. And so, yes, being a gay person, you were constantly surveilled. I mean, your life was under a microscope and there's a real sense of tension. And I say that actually being a gay person was worse in American politics than being a communist because a communist could become an ex-communist and he could, you know, rat out his former comrades. He could denounce the party. And in fact, some of the leading and most important figures in the early American conservative movement were ex-communists. A gay person could not do that. Once you were outed or even accused of this, it would never go away. And in fact, there's one figure who I write about extensively in the book who sort of embodies both of these, Whitaker Chambers, who's at the center of the first major spy drama of the Cold War involving a man named Alger Hiss, who's a former State Department official. So I'm sure lots of listeners will know the story, but lots also won't. Can you talk about that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Alger Hiss, he was referred to as the G's of the Eastern Establishment. I mean, you know, educated at Harvard. He clerked for Oliver Wendell Holmes on the Supreme Court. He served in the State Department in high-ranking positions. He was the Secretary General at the first meeting of the United Nations in San Francisco. And then after leaving the State Department, he becomes the head of the Carnegie Endowment. So just, you know, perfect spotless resume. Whitaker Chambers is this sort of dumpy, fat guy with bad teeth who worked for Time Magazine, a conservative writer. And in August 1948, in the first live televised congressional hearing in the United States, in the hearing, it's before the House on American Activities Committee, which had just been founded. Well, it had been founded actually during World War II as an anti-fascist organization, but now it obviously changed its stripes. He accuses Hiss of being a communist. And this becomes a major scandal. And it's really an indictment of the American elite because they had all defended Hiss and sort of promoted him. But there's this underlying tension, this sort of unspoken element to this whole drama, which is a homoerotic one, because no one can really understand the nature of the relationship between these two men. It's believed, and it's actually true, that Chambers had led a secret life as a homosexual while he was also a member of the Communist Party. And it's never publicly alleged, but it's hinted at, it's inferred. And the Hiss team basically go around spreading this story that the reason why Whitaker Chambers is making these accusations against Alger Hiss is that he's a spurned homosexual. 
that Hiss rejected his advances and he's sort of concocting these, you know, Baroque stories about the two of them being members of a secret communist cell. It's all lies. Really, he wanted him and was rejected. It's true that Chambers, whether or not he was gay or not, we can that, that's up for debate, but he lived a gay life. I mean, he was sleeping around with men in the 1930s, and he admitted this to the FBI secretly because he wanted to tell them everything in advance of the big trial uh, for perjury that his would undergo. But Chambers could come out, so to speak, as a former communist. He could say in 1948, I had been a member of this communist cell. I was a traitor to my country, but now I'm a conservative and I'm embracing motherhood and apple pie, blah, blah, blah. In a way that, that, that convert stories often do, that probably even gave him additional standing, right? Like, I could build and tell you how evil these communists are. I was one of them, but, you know, I'm now a decent person. And his memoir, Witness, by the way, is one of the most important and actually one of the great autobiographies of the 20th century. And in that book, he alludes to... I mean, it's funny, I, 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 I came across passages in that book where he's describing meeting his, you know, contacts in the communist underground. And he's describing going up to a newsstand and taking a particular magazine off the newsstand, maybe turning a page, looking at the man next to him. And he's sort of sending signals by the, you know, the particular magazine he chooses. And then they would go off and then exchange secret documents. You can read these passages of him meeting his, you know, these furtive encounters with, with, with another comrade in the underground, communist underground. And it reads word for word like a description of cruising for gay sex in the 1940s or 50s or even later, right? Sort of the making eye contact with, with someone. It's all coded behavior. And so I hate this term as a verb, but I sort of queered his memoir in a way. I, I read his memoir looking for these hints. You know, most writers, when they write about the His Chambers case, they're not, this is sort of a, a side drama in it, whereas I think it's actually central to the story of, of, of the His Chambers confrontation and really the early years of the Cold War. And that's what I try to do with everything in this book is really look at how homosexuality or more accurately, the fear of homosexuality influenced everything from the formation of the CIA, its rivalry with the FBI in the early years of the Cold War. McCarthyism is, I mean, there's just a whole, you know, homoerotic tinge to McCarthyism. The court of Camelot and Jack and Jackie Kennedy and their gay friends you know, Nixon's paranoia and how it's really inflected by homophobia, the Reagans and just kind of the aura of homosexuality that sort of surrounds the Reagans. And the book goes all the way to Bill Clinton. And I end with him in 1995, because that's the year that gay people were finally permitted to have security clearances. So talk us through some of that story. So you were starting to hint at the first kind of gay rights organizations and so on that were starting to be founded. What happens after this most intense early Cold War moment of repression in the 50s? What do the 60s look like? What do the 70s look like? So there's an important moment in 1957. There's a 32-year-old Harvard-trained PhD astronomer whose name is Frank Kameny. And he's working for the Army Map Service, which is the predecessor to the Geospatial Intelligence Agency, basically the military arm of the space program. And it's December 1957, so this is two months after Sputnik is launched, right? So we're two months into the space race. He's working at an observatory in Hawaii, and he's summoned all the way back to Washington by the Civil Service Commission, which is today the Office of Personnel Management. They basically manage all the federal employees. He's summoned back to Washington, and he's told on the spot, we have evidence that you're gay. It's an arrest record for solicitation, and you're going to be fired. And they fire him right there. And what Frank does is sort of revolutionary. He becomes the first gay person fired by the federal government to decide he's actually going to challenge this. You have to understand in the years leading up to this, 
thousands of people had been fired from the federal government. And none of them wanted to challenge it because challenging it meant you had to go public, obviously. And what he did was revolutionary because he's basically the first person to say, you know, I'm not sick and we're not sick as homosexuals. It's the society that is sick. And I also think it's important to illustrate again, back to my point about why homosexuality was worse than being a communist. This is two months into the space race. What's the federal government doing? They're expending their resources to fire a Harvard trained PhD astronomer working for the army map service. It just tells you how obsessed they were with this issue and that they'd rather fire a homosexual than use his talents in the fight against communism. Right. And there were thousands of other people, highly trained, you know, well-educated patriotic men and women who were fired. This is what's known as the lavender scare. And it's worse than the red scare because the red scare was actually predicated upon something legitimate, which was the fear of communism. I mean, it was exaggerated, the fear of communism, but we were right to oppose communism. It was an evil ideology. And there were, you know, a number of high-ranking communists in the federal government, Alger Hiss being one of them, certainly not the, you know, the hundreds that Joe McCarthy was alleging, and he ruined many innocent people's lives. But there was some legitimate basis to be worried about communism. That's my point. With homosexuality, it was completely without foundation whatsoever. And just as many lives were, were ruined by this, you know, insane or, or irrational fear. So anyway, Kameny goes off and he challenges it. His firing, he fails. He tries to go up to the Supreme Court. Not even the ACLU will take his case, by the way. Another example, right? The ACLU took plenty of people who were communists or accused of communism, they defended those people. That's actually what the ACLU was founded to do during the first Red Scare. They wouldn't take the case of a homosexual in 1957. So that's how lonely the homosexual was in the United States in this time. And in 1961, he founds an organization called the Mattachine Society of Washington, which had chapters in Los Angeles and New York that were not very active. And it was really the first gay civil rights organization. They're petitioning the Civil Service Commission. They are protesting outside the White House in 1965. This is four years before the Stonewall Uprising in New York City, which we're sort of led to believe was the birthplace of the gay rights movement. I actually argue it began earlier in Washington, D.C., not in New York City. Is this a form of local patriotism as, as a Washingtonian? Or, or why do you think it's important that this moment, 1965, is overlooked and, and Stonewall is sort of turned into this iconic moment. The reason this has happened is for kind of latter day political purposes and that there are, I don't want to down, I mean, look, Stonewall was, was important, right? This was gay men and women fighting back against police harassment in 1969, which was common, police harassment. I think the reason why Stonewall is sort of, the importance of it is exaggerated over that of the Mattachine Society in Washington. It's, it's a sexier story. And if you're in favor of a more liberatory radical politics, then you want the founding myth of your movement to be, you know, drag queens throwing cobblestones at cops in New York City fighting back, as opposed to, you know, neatly dressed men and women in Washington, D.C., marching in an oval. And they're very clearly modeling themselves off the African-American civil rights movement. You know, all the men are in jackets and ties. The women are all in blouses and skirts below the knee. They're holding up these placards that, you know, word for word, very similar to civil rights slogans, right? You know, homosexuals demand equal rights and whatnot. These are sort of two channels within the gay movement, right? There's the more kind of assimilationist wing, right? And then there's the more liberatory radical wing. And these, these have often been in tension 
particularly after 69, after Stonewall. Um, and you can see them, you know, in sort of the Mattachine society approach and then the kind of Stonewall approach. That's really interesting. So the White House protest is in a way an early symbol of the assimilationist movement for gay rights. Respectability politics is the term that's used. I think it's a derogatory term. Right. And on the other hand, it's the sort of like, no, the whole point of the gay rights movement should be to challenge all of bourgeois society and sort of help overthrow it and so on. And as you're saying, that's a tension that continues through the gay rights movement to this day. And when we fast forward a little bit further, to the important essays that some of our mutual friends and acquaintances like Jonathan Rauch and, of course, Andrew Sullivan write in defense of the idea of gay marriage, they describe some of the blowback to the idea, of course, coming from the right and, of course, coming from conservatives and so on, but a lot of it also coming from people within the gay rights movement on the left of the movement who are saying, hang on a second, you know, marriage is terrible. We don't want marriage. We want to overthrow the whole system. So how does that play out both intellectually and on the ground in Washington in the decades after. Right. So in Washington, you don't really see much of this. And I think that's because, and just the people in Washington were dealing with the daily realities of government. And look, Washington is a unique city. It's people from all over the country come here, from the most conservative rural districts and the most liberal urban bastions, right? And they all come here and they all have to work together to make this country work. So I think that made the gay scene in many ways more small C conservative, right? Because people were working for the federal government. And you know, even if you're working for a liberal congressperson, a very liberal congressperson, you have to compromise and you have to be pragmatic. And so the movement here, which I don't, I should be clear, my book is not really a, it's not a history of the gay rights movement. It's a history of, like I say, sort of secrecy surrounding homosexuality in government. So I'm not you know, the, there's there's other books that are better histories on the movement. But the elements of the, you know, the activist community in Washington, the gay activist community was more kind of pragmatic. It's not for nothing that, you know, ACT UP is founded in New York City. That's like the direct action AIDS group where they're, you know, throwing condoms at the Cardinal at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, right? They're doing die-ins on the Brooklyn Bridge, Obviously, there's, you know, very kind of radical left-wing gay politics in San Francisco. It's not in Washington. And I think that has to do with the fact that this is the seat of federal power. That's interesting. So you alluded that by 1995, the sort of ban on security clearances for homosexuals is lifted. What does that moment look like? Because it's kind of a mixed moment, right? You still have Don Arthur Tal in the military. You have a Defense of Marriage Act that is passed. And at the same time, you see sort of some forms of liberalization and, of course, a growing cultural acceptance for still slow in the 90s. So what allowed Washington, D.C. and the country to make their progress by the 90s? And why was the progress then so fast after the 90s? Why is it that things look so much better on on many of these fronts today than they did in the mid-1990s? I mean, I think at the end of the day, it really just comes down to biology and the fact that gay people are randomly distributed across the population. They are of every color, religion, race, class, political outlook. So you have a situation where when the national polling companies like Pew or Gallup or whomever, they're asking Americans, you know, do you know a gay person? They start polling on that question in the early 1970s. And it's 2% or less. Now, obviously, those people did know gay people. They were just in the closet, right? 
Now, the latest polling shows that 94% of Americans know a gay person. And I just think that over time, you have all these gay people coming out of the closet in growing numbers. It soon becomes a fact that every American knows somebody who's gay. Maybe it's just the mailman or a teacher, right, or an acquaintance. Maybe it's a child, which is not to say that all these gay people had it easy. Certainly many of them didn't. But over time, I think just the sheer fact that gay people are, let's say, 2 to 5% of the population, and they're not going away, and attempts to change them, you know, to convert them into heterosexuals fails. Just over time, that becomes obvious to people that at the end of the day, gay people are really no different from straight people, right? That there's this aspect of human existence, really no different than being left-handed. It's a morally neutral trait, right? And so we go from, like I said, at the beginning of this book, we go from this phenomenon that is really considered the worst possible thing. I don't think it's wrong to say that gay people were among the most, maybe the most despised minority in the United States. I mean, their very existence was criminalized. To go from that to where we are today is to me, I mean, I think it's safe to say it's the most dramatic and rapid social transformation in the West, in American history. Certainly the polls would show that. If you just look at attitudes on homosexuality and gay marriage, there's no other issue where there's been a more rapid or dramatic shift in public opinion. And so I think that's worth studying. You know, anyone who's interested in politics and social change, no matter what your interest lies in, no matter what cause it is, or whether you're right or left. I mean, the success of not even the gay movement per se, but just sort of the transformation of public attitudes on homosexuality, I think is a phenomenal, amazing social science inquiry. There's a few other liberalizations of opinion that are similar, perhaps not quite as extreme, but one of the really striking ones to me in America is that, you know, in the early 1960s, only about one in 20 Americans believed that interracial marriage was morally acceptable. And now about one in 20 people believe that it's morally unacceptable. So that is really just flipped on a dime. And that to me feels, feels very significant as well. And I agree with you about this sort of snowball effect, right? That if you're in an equilibrium in which nobody can come out because the penalties for coming out are so extreme, then it's very easy for people to have terrible opinions of homosexuality. Exactly. This is actually one big point I want to make is that it goes back to the secrecy issue. When homosexuals were secret, you could say anything about them and get away with it. And I write in the book about how during World War II, uh, it was widely believed within the upper reaches of the U.S. government that the Nazis were a gay cabal, that sort of gay men were more inclined to be Nazis. And there is kind of a kernel of truth in this, only in the sense that one of the leading Nazis in the early years, Ernst Röhm, the head of the SA, was a relatively openly gay man and kind of proud about it, boasted about it, and Hitler tolerated him. Of course, he was like the first to go in the Night of the Long Knives. But that sort of the presence of this one prominent kind of homosexual then leads to this sort of myth. And I come across documents where you know, they're speculating at length about the supposed homosexuality of Hitler, that maybe the, the stab in the back myth is actually a sign of kind of, you know, a latent fear of being sodomized. I mean, really kind of crazy stuff. And then just a couple of years later, during the Cold War, we have this conflation of homosexuality and communism. So like, there's no logic to this. And then in 1967, you know, the only man who's ever prosecuted for the assassination of John F. Kennedy is a gay businessman in New Orleans 
And the reckless prosecutor who brings these charges basically alleges that there was a right wing homosexual cabal that assassinated JFK as revenge for the failure of the Bay of Pigs. Right. And this actually becomes the basis of the movie JFK by Oliver Stone, which is like it's a great movie in terms of its cinematic qualities. It's also probably the most homophobic movie that Hollywood's ever produced. Um, so my point is, is that when homosexuality was secret, you could say anything about gay people and homosexuality lent itself very easily to conspiracy theory. And it's very similar to anti-Semitism, actually, in that manner. Gays are believed to be a part of this sort of secret international, secret fraternity. They're more loyal to this, what's called the homintern. That's a great term. I haven't heard that before. It's a play on the common turn, obviously, right? But the homosexual international, there's actually a chapter in my book called The Homin Turn. And it's fascinating. But um, the gays are believed to be more loyal to this than they are to their nations that they're supposedly, you know, pledging fealty to, which is very similar to anti-Semitism, right? They're cosmopolitans. The same exact accusations are leveled against gay people. And so once gay people start coming out, then this sort of homophobia becomes kind of plainly absurd and ridiculous. And I think when you read my book, I think it'll surprise a lot of people, the things that were believed about gay people, because we thankfully don't believe those things anymore. Yeah, one of the things that I find, especially talking to my students, but also in discourse in general, is that people have forgotten just how bad things were. And, you know, I have students who tell me, you know, we're going back on gay rights and this is, you know, one of the worst moments in American history to be a gay person. And, you know, whatever you may think about some of the developments in the last years and whatever legitimate concerns, uh, you know, minority groups always have about how we might be victimized in the future. It is just nuts to compare what it is like as a gay person today in the United States to what it would have been like in 1950. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I learned and received writing this book was just having an enormous sense of gratitude to be a gay person born at the time I was born. I'm 38 years old. And I think it's safe to say that being gay has never really hindered me in any professional endeavor that I've chosen. That was so not true for so many people born just a little bit earlier than me, right? If I'd been born in 1973 instead of 1983 or certainly 1953 or 43, my life would have been very different. I would not have been able to do the things that I've been able to do. And so that makes me very happy. It makes me very grateful to the gay people who came before, who really suffered and went through a lot to create a better country, not just for gay people, but for straight people too. I think straight people have less hangups about their own sexual orientations and gender presentation in particular because of what gay people did, right? So I think, for instance, I I think straight men can show more affection for one another now without being, you know, paranoid about having their manhood called into question. I think we've come to a more enlightened view and attitude towards both sexual orientation and also gender presentation. That's largely to the credit, I think, of earlier generations of gay men and women. Presumably, I mean, even over the course of your lifetime, there has been significant change. I mean, I'm thinking of politically someone like Pete Buttigieg, who is a couple of years older than you, is pretty much my age, 40 years old who, when he was at Harvard, I assume he believed that, you know, if he were to be openly gay, he wouldn't be able to be president of his country. And while there might still be some obstacles today, he came close to winning the nomination of the Democratic Party for president. And in fact, was sort of mocked by some activists for not being sufficiently gay, whatever that means, for not being gay in the right ways. Or Certainly within my lifetime, you know, my mom is a musician and 
stereotypical as that sounds, that means that I grew up around a good number of gay people who were singers and so on. But in my school, practically nobody was openly gay. And I came again from a background that was certainly encouraging of homosexuality in a certain kind of way, something that horrifies certain Republicans today. My mom took me to a drag show when I was 13 or something. So it's not like the message that I received was homophobic, but growing up in that milieu, you know, I remember worrying about people thinking I might be gay or something like that. Yeah, there's a line in my book where I say the greatest fear of the American male is that he will be homosexual. And I'm writing about that in the context of my book, right? And so I don't, I don't think that's still the case. I hope it's not still the case. But I think it's fair to say that until quite recently, the greatest fear of every American boy and man is that he might be gay or perceived as gay. Well, and, and you see that in weird debates about, you know, when Friends came on to Netflix and, you know, a generation of people who'd never seen it sort of watched it. And they decided that it was sort of, you know, politically unacceptable in all these ways, most, most of which were silly. The, the problem of friends, of course, is just that it's not funny. But, you know, there are all these storylines about people being afraid to be perceived as gay. And I sort of read them, and I'm not an expert on this, I read them as sort of making fun of that, right? I think that within the context of the 90s, these were probably seen as reasonably progressive storylines that were sort of self-ironic or ironic about we're making fun of this sort of fear of homosexuality. But, you know, from today's vantage point, they just read as homophobic because I think to some extent, thankfully, we have lost that fear. Yeah, that is fair to say. So if we think of the gay rights movement as just a movement of incredible success, of really transforming the lives of gay people in the country and transforming how people think about homosexuality today, to what extent is that replicable? To what extent can other movements whether it's, let's say, the trans movement today, or whether it's, you know, movements for the equality of other kinds of groups, not necessarily sexual groups or gender groups, learn from it. Because of this biological factor that I mentioned earlier, the fact that gays are randomly distributed, that is an advantage that other groups don't have. Trans people might, presumably, but not African-Americans. So I think that's why, you know, the race issue we haven't has progressed as far as one would have hoped as we have with the gay issue, right? Because you know, you could one day have a gay son or daughter. If you want in this country, you can live a pretty segregated existence. It's much easier to go through life that way, unfortunately, in the United States. We do segregate still. You could, of course, have, by the strange alchemy of American racial thinking, you know, a black child, but only if you choose to procreate with somebody do that. And it's certainly not sort of like at the age of 18, your child springs on you, but they're Latino or black or something like that. Exactly. So that is a huge part of this. We haven't talked about it yet, but now we will. You know, what was the other reason why? I, th I think it had a lot to do with persuasion, which is, I believe, the auspices under which we are having this conversation. That is correct. Thank you very much for pointing it out. <laughs> <laughs> which is that gay people successfully persuaded the country that their cause was just, right? And that these things that you were led to believe about gay people, that they were pedophiles, that they were diseased, that they were sick, that they were traitors, that they were sinners, all these terrible things were wrong. And that took many forms. It took, you know, Ellen coming out on national television. It took openly gay politicians, you know, in the 1970s and 80s. It took, you know, just the average gay person coming out to their coworkers and friends. It took Will and Grace. It was Joe Biden who credited Will and Grace with being the most sort of important cultural artifact in terms of you know, promoting tolerance and understanding of gay people. So it took all these things. 
And, you know, was there an element of boycotts and browbeating and canceling? You know, there's a side of the gay movement that would like to stress, you know, they're kind of using political force to smite one's political enemies. Sure, there was. I don't know how useful that was, frankly, at the end of the day. I don't know if, you know, boycotting Chick-fil-A, which was a big cause a couple of years ago because, you know, the owner of Chick-fil-A, who's a religious Christian in his personal capacity, opposed gay marriage. And so there was a movement afoot to boycott Chick-fil-A. I'm not really sure if boycotting Chick-fil-A was as influential as, you know, the kind of corpus of Andrew Sullivan and Jonathan Rauch and other important gay and lesbian writers, right? I'm willing to put my bet more on the latter as playing a role. You have movements within religious denominations, right? You have openly gay pastors and rabbis and imams even, right? And they're playing a huge role too. I guess I would distinguish between two different questions here, right? I think you mostly spoke to a question of tactics that actually you're saying the sort of, you know, the person of the White House was perhaps more effective than the Stonewall riot or that browbeating and cancellation was less effective than, you know, people coming out on television or developing television shows of gay characters and so on. Yes. What about the goals, though? Because it's like me, you know, when you talk to someone like Andrew Sullivan, what he emphasizes is the difference between the goals, right? The difference between through the agency of us marginalized people, we're going to blow up the system and change what this country looks like versus, hey, nice system of marriages you have over there. We want in, right? We too love each other. We do want the security that this legal and social institution affords us. And by what good measure are you keeping us out of it? By what good measure are you saying that our love counts less than yours? How do you think, does the gay rights movement also suggest that the nature of the goals matters and that groups who want to be successful need to emulate that? Absolutely. I think it's the assimilationist argument, for lack of a better word, and saying that gay people don't want to destroy these institutions. They want to join them and strengthen them, which is why marriage and the military were the two major causes of the gay rights movement in the 90s and in 2000s and were successful in achieving those and you know i would compare it to defund the police or do we want to reform the police so that people of color are not being discriminated against right so the defund the police arguments would be similar to you know screw marriage we think marriage is a bourgeois patriarchal institution and we actually do want to destroy it right? Which there were radicals in the gay movement who were saying such things. I don't think they represented many people and they were largely ignored. I think that's kind of the equivalent of like the defund the police, right? And you can come up with all sorts of analogies, right? So yes, absolutely. It was an argument based on equality. It was an argument based on pragmatism, on procedural and using procedural tactics. It was an argument really rooted, I think, actually in the ideals of this country. And if you look back at Frank Kameny has a voluminous record, written record of letters to every public official, right? Every president he was writing letters to. He was an extremely eloquent guy. And he is constantly making reference to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. This is not a Marxist revolutionary cause. This is a very, you know, dyed in the wool American. He's modeling himself on Martin Luther King and the arguments of the African American civil rights movement. So as this conversation has made clear, I think you are in a philosophical sense a liberal. Broadening the subject a little bit, how do you think of threats to liberalism in the United States today? And 
That's a liberal tradition, which, as you argue, I think rightly, has been able to afford us great progress on questions like gay rights. How will this liberal ideology come out of this moment? Do you think that it'll it'll prevail? I mean, look, there is no greater tool that gay people had in this country than the First Amendment, and in all its forms, freedom of expression and the freedom to assemble. That's what gay people were denied in the personal individual sense and that they you know, didn't come out of the closet, but also they couldn't, like I mentioned the Supreme Court case, they couldn't even write arguments in their favor until that was overturned. And then, you know, assembling in a bar, right, was illegal. You couldn't serve alcohol to homosexuals in most American cities. Uh, that's why Stonewall erupted into a riot, because the police were raiding the bar. So gay people have had no better ally in their cause than free expression and First Amendment. And it pains me now when I look at the polls from, you know, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, and they poll young people. And you see that self-identifying LGBTQ young people are actually more supportive of shouting down, disinviting, you know, certain speakers than their non-LGBTQ peers. That really pains me. I was thinking about this at the beginning of this conversation when, you know, you talked about this incredible power of federal bureaucracy being used to fire people for being gay. And that's a true form of cancellation. And to shut down these publications. And it just strikes me as such a weird tension today where activists are saying, you know, the whole society is secretly racist or secretly homophobic and transphobic and all of those different things. And at the same time, many of those activists also want to empower those same bureaucratic institutions and corporations and universities and all those other places to have a power to censor what we can say and who can assemble. And, you know, I think our history is just such a strong testament to how dangerous that is. Absolutely. And it just boggles me. If you read the history of gay people in this country, it is a story of transparency and expression winning out over, you know, secrecy and shame and being quiet and silenced. I just think it's, and this probably applies to a lot of the conversations you have with people. I think for a lot of people, they don't have principles. They want power. And once they get power, then they want to exercise that power, right? And so the left in general was the party of free speech, because it used to be the left that was screwed for expressing their free speech in this country in most cases, right? You go back to the founding of the ACLU. Who was it founded to protect? You know, anarchists and anti-war activists. And then you go through the civil rights movement, the gay movement, the women's movement, you know, radicals on campus, all sorts of left-wing causes and progressive causes being shut down. But now that those people now run these institutions particularly academia, where they have the most concentrated control, a lot of them are not sticking true to their principles because they now have the power. And I think to make your adherence to principles you know, solely conditional on whether or not you have power, I think is very dangerous. How worried are you about the quote-unquote post-liberal right, whether it's in the form of sort of nationalist conservative governors like Ron DeSantis, or whether it's in the form of sort of common good conservative intellectuals like your old friend Sora Bahmari? I find it hard to see how attitudes about gay people and homosexuality can really go backwards. 
you should never say never, right? Because look at Berlin in the 1920s, right? Look at Weimar Berlin. You know, we've all seen cabaret. It's a great place to be gay or gender variants or whatever. Weimar Berlin was a fun place. And then what happened after, right? Obviously. But for, I suppose with this analogy, presumably is that it was sort of before the era of opinion polling, but I assume that if you polled the German population on homosexuality in 1925, most Germans would have been very homophobic. But these liberal enclaves, these enclaves of libertinism, like the big cities in which you go ahead and live. That feels very different from today. Yeah. So I find it hard to see how these attitudes go backwards, right? Because you talk to younger people and you teach younger people, right? And they are so relaxed about this that it's hard to see how that goes back, right? So I don't see how gay marriage gets overturned. I've asked a lot on this book tour, well, don't you think that the overturning of Roe versus Wade could lead to the reversal of the Obergefell case. I just think it's very unlikely just because Clarence Thomas was the only justice to even raise that possibility. The others were explicit in opposing it. And talk us through how they were explicit about it. In the ruling opinion, they said the legal rationale that they're using here to overturn Roe versus Wade does not apply to other cases involving privacy, the privacy clause, because there isn't a human being at stake, right? The issue with abortion is whether or not a fetus is a human. That's really what it boils down to. If it's a human then it needs some kind of legal protection, right? There's no question about this with gay people. So the idea in the ruling, as I recall it, is that it says, we are not the right instance to decide whether or not a fetus is a human being. The question we're putting back to the legislatures, but because of the potential status of a fetus as a human being, there is an issue here, right? There's some plausible claim for why one might want to regulate abortions. Whereas when it comes to something like gay sex, there's, you know, two consenting adults. So there's nothing on the other side here to generate the concern that would justify the invasion. There's not a potential human life at stake. That's their reasoning. Okay, You can agree with that or disagree with that. But that's their reasoning. And so I don't see in the current composition of the court how Obergefell gets overturned or the Lawrence v. Texas, which was the sodomy ruling. That said, I mean, the temperature in the country right now is quite ugly on these issues because we're seeing this backlash, I think, to the visibility of LGBT people. But in particular, I think the transgender issue is much more conceptually difficult for people to wrap their heads around than homosexuality was. That's fair to say. Even liberal-minded people, I think the issues tied up with the transgender question, for instance, transgender women in sports, right? Just the whole question of crossing sex. And, and whatever the right answers here, it doesn't have the structure of something like gay marriage, right? Because of gay marriage, it's sort of like, look, this is sort of a tired political line that people were saying at the time. And true, but sort of tired line is like, well, you don't have to marry somebody of the same sex, you just have to allow somebody else, right? Obviously, the stakes are different when it's a question of who is allowed to partake in this competition. And whatever the right answer to that is, it changes the nature of a competition in a different way when it changes the nature of marriage for some different couple to be able to marry each other. And so I think that there's a backlash against this, against the, the, the kind of overreach, if I could say, of the transgender movement. I think that they haven't taken all the right lessons from the gay movement. I'm seeing less attempts at persuasion and more attempts at browbeating and cancellation, actually. A lot of it, oftentimes against gay men and lesbians. And that's generating a backlash. And... You know, I just read a news story before I logged on today about a pride festival in Tennessee is now being forced to hold it indoors because there's security threats 
threats of violence. And this is tied up with, I think, just a lot of the problems we're having in this country right now, the tribalism, polarization, and you've discussed that in all its many guises. And I think that the LGBT is now becoming, again, a kind of cultural war issue, but it's mostly the gender aspect of it. It's not the L, the G, and the B. It's mostly the T and the Q that we're now debating. And that's now the focus of kind of the controversy. So let me push you on sort of how secure those rights are, because they feel very secure to me right now as well. I agree with you that I can't imagine 10 or 20 years from now, and, and perhaps in our lifetime, you know, gay rights really taking a very significant step back, or maybe certain kinds of steps back, but not a huge step back. But the weird thing about history is that there's all the stability in sort of the short and midterm, but over the long term, you can have these vast changes. And so, you know, nobody in the 1950s could have imagined that we would be as tolerant towards homosexuality than we are today. And perhaps this is, in a positive sense, a case where Humpty Dumpty can't be put back together again, right? Where once people are out and it generates that tolerance because you know your cousin, you know your neighbor, it's just very, very hard to get people back into the closet and to spread those lies again. And perhaps there's just no mechanism for that to happen. Let's, let's hope that's the case. But if you ask me 100 or 200 years from now, what will things look like? I don't know. You know, there's a lot of evidence from other societies today and from the history of humanity that human societies often do have very, very repressive norms about homosexuality. And I'm asking that to you in part since you're gay, but also in part because we're both Jewish. We can't imagine. Uh, 10 or 20 years from now, the United States being a place of intense anti-Semitism such that Jews are imperiled. But given the long history of persecution against and suffering of Jews over the last thousands of years, I can easily imagine that being the case in 100 or 200 years. Who knows? Yeah, I'm actually less optimistic about the future of the Jews in this country than I am of gays. How come? Probably because anti-Semitism has been so enduring and just never seems to go away and actually seems to be getting worse and has been getting worse over the past 20 years, I think, since 9-11. It's growing on the left, whereas the story of gays in this country is the complete opposite. So it's just more linear, you mean? It's more linear, yeah. The progress that gay people made, like I said before, it's the most you know, dramatically positive social development in the history of this country. And for Jews, the situation is getting worse than what it was before. How so for people who might not be in the States? Kanye West tweeted the other day. Now, look, he's mentally not all there, but a hugely influential figure. And yes, he was condemned by it, condemned for it by prominent people. But certainly the tenor of our politics, I mean, having openly elected officials now in the Democratic Party, you know, making openly anti-Semitic statements is not something that happened with such frequency 10, 15 years ago. I really just think a lot has changed since 9-11. I think the 9-11 combined with the kind of intifada, and then you have the whole Trump phenomenon. And I don't think Trump is an anti-Semite, but a lot of the right-wing anti-Semites seem to like him. He opened up a can of worms. We're becoming a society more prone to conspiracy theories on right and left, which is never good for the Jews. You look at the situation on college campuses. I'm one of those who believes that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, but even if you're not, it's hard to deny that a lot of these actions of campus activists, that their anti-Zionist agitation is not anti-Semitic. I mean, the latest is just this story out of Berkeley Law School, where a group of organizations just decided to announce that they will not invite any Zionist speakers 
that's the word they use, Zionist. I mean, there was a comedian last week, a Jewish comedian in the Midwest doing a show somewhere, and a woman just started shouting free Palestine at him. I mean, this is, this is a, anecdotes, okay? But the data shows it too. You look at the data, you look at the FBI hate crimes database, uh, hate crimes against Jews are skyrocketing. I mean, in New York City, the attacks on visible, we're talking about observant Jews, are skyrocketing. And people don't seem to care. I mean, the amount of attention we devote to this type of hatred is so infinitesimally small compared to that which we devote to other types. You didn't book me to talk about anti-Semitism, but I don't feel any of these things that I just said about the state of the Jews. I don't feel that way about the state of the gays. Maybe they're intertwined in a way, and I'm deluding myself, and maybe things will be bad for gays. But you know, I'm, I can't tell you what's, what things are going to look like in 100 or 200 years. Of course, not. We're, we'll, we'll probably be uploading ourselves into computers at that point. So, No, nobody's Jewish in the metaverse. And one of the great things about the book is just how entertaining it is and, and how many just fascinating stories there in it. You know, normally I ask people at the end of a podcast, you know, what can give us hope, what we can do, or, you know, some kind of face. Like, tell us a story from your book. I mean, I think the wildest story that I came across, probably the biggest scoop in the book, was I uncovered an attempt by a group of congressional Republicans in the summer of 1980. They were liberal and moderate Republicans, and they were not happy with the fact that Ronald Reagan was about to win the party's nomination. They tried to convince the Washington Post and Ben Bradley in particular, the legendary editor at the time. They tried to convince him to investigate what they claimed was a story involving a group of right-wing anti-communist homosexuals supposedly controlling Ronald Reagan, that they were controlling him as if he were a Manchurian candidate. That's actually the term that they used. And the story goes back to when he was governor of California. There was a gay scandal involving several aides. And Reagan, for years, he'd been kind of trailed by this whiff of scandal involving a couple of gay men. And it resurfaced in the summer of 1980. And Ben Bradley, he assigned his crack squad of investigative reporters, including Bob Woodward. They branch out. They investigate the story. This had never been reported on before. I found all the notes from the investigation in Ben Bradley's papers at the University of Texas. And so I reconstruct it in the book. And it was a wild, crazy story. Dick Cheney makes an appearance in it. It's kind of unbelievable today, but it all happened. And it's in Secret City. Jamie Kerchick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.